There are lots of reasons why it's bad when politicians fail to appropriate money to keep the government going at the end of a fiscal year. This year, shutdown brinksmanship is sharper than ever. So what is so bad if the government shuts down for a few days or a month? Well, we get a list of reasons from the vice president of research for the Peter G. Peterson Foundation, Jeff Holland. Mr. Holland, good to have you with us. Nice to be here. Thank you, Tom. And let's go through your list, because the very first item on the list is that it is costly to the government, which is a little counterintuitive when nothing's operating, the money's not flowing out. How can it be costly for the government? Yeah, so you might think that actually saves money, but there are a number of things that are costly. One is just the loss in work output. There are people will be working during that time, and they will eventually get paid. So that's just work that's not getting done. The second thing is, the contingency plans that agencies have to implement in the face of a continuing resolution or a shutdown cost money. So it means that people are spending time figuring out what those contingency plans are rather than working on other things. It's also possible that contractors could include premiums to cover the risk of delayed payment. So things like that could also be happening. It could be costly. OMB estimated that the cost of lost productivity in the 2013 shutdown was around $2 billion. Subsequently, the Senate Permanent Committee Subcommittee sorry, on Investigations found that the previous three shutdowns had cost at least $4 billion, and that didn't even include the cost to DOD and some other agencies who could not fully report. So there are definitely costs involved with shutting down the government. And as you point out, eventually the back pay does flow, so you're paying for work that essentially did not take place, not through the fault of the federal employees, but simply for the fact that they could not work. They're proscribed from working unless they're the accepted employees. But people in policy, procurement, budget planning, all of those things cannot work. In fact, they're not even allowed to access email at home. That's right, but they will eventually get paid. The Government Employee Fair Treatment Act of 2019 provides for retroactive pay, so um, they will get paid even if they're not allowed to come into the office for a period. All right, and then you are also stating that the government shutdowns can be bad for the economy. We've got a pretty big economy, and so, you know, a few hundred thousand people laid off for a couple days. Is it really that costly? So it's not necessarily that costly, but there is some effect, especially if the shutdown goes on for a while. There have been various estimates of this by uh, analysts. In 2013, the Bureau of Economic Analysis calculated that the shutdown reduced GDP in the fourth quarter by three tenths of a percentage point. S&P Global had done a similar estimate in 2017. They estimated that reduced GDP by around $6.5 billion a week. CBO came up with an estimate that the partial government shutdown in 2018 reduced real GDP by $11 billion, although most of that was recovered. So again, you know, we have a $25 trillion economy. These are relatively small numbers, but they're unnecessary ones. You know, the shutdown just does have some effect. And this isn't on your list, but there is this effect. And, you know, the founder of the foundation, you know, was someone that knew pretty much how government works and maybe how it should work, is the perception, you know, around the world, I wonder, what people think of a government that is such a long, stable, democratic type of operation, maybe the longest in history, works on this manner. There must be some international non-quantifiable effect. People are saying, what the heck is wrong with those people? Yeah, I've worked abroad before, and it's hard to explain how the federal government could shut down. This doesn't happen in other countries. I mean, parliamentary democracies, even if lack of a budget causes them to default, it government operations still continue. So yeah, it's an anomaly for sure. 
We're speaking with Jeff Holland. He's vice president of research for the Peter G. Peterson Foundation, which I guess is fair to say is in favor of fiscal restraint and returning to some kind of a semblance of less deficits and less debt accumulation. Fair way to put it? Um, Yeah, we use the term fiscal responsibility. So we're concerned about the trajectory of the debt. We're certainly concerned, which ties a little bit into what we're talking about here in terms of operating under normal order and things like that. The trajectory of the debt by all estimates is upward and rising quickly. And uh, yeah, that concerns us for the future of upcoming generations. All right. So getting back to your list of you know the costs of a government shutdown, and there is the shutdown itself, which is an interruption of federal programs and services. Although it seems like in recent years, more and more of the government operations have been accepted so that they do keep on going and the public feels it less than maybe the shutdowns of the Clinton era. Yeah, you know, the the shutdown affects appro- essentially affects appropriations only, so which we often call discretionary spending. That type of spending in 2022 uh, accounted for about a little over a quarter of the budget. So the shutdown doesn't affect programs that are governed by permanent law, so it doesn't affect Social Security benefits. It doesn't affect Medicare payments. It doesn't affect most income security programs, veterans programs, and other elements of, of federal activities that are mandatory or that are governed by permanent law. Appropriations do affect a lot of the daily operations of the federal government, things like scientific research, uh, safety inspections, the park service, some transportation activities, passport services, citizenship, things like that. It could affect programs like the Supplementary Nutrition Assistance Program if it goes on too long. That's a mandatory program, but usually the authorization for benefits is done like every 30 days or so. So disruptions will occur even if a lot of elements of federal government activities will continue to be carried out. And by the way, another aside question about you personally, having spent a quarter of a century at the Congressional Budget Office where you were churning out all of those reports that I wish more people would read because they're really good. And if you want to know what's really going on, you know, read the CBO. I quote it to people at cocktail parties all the time and their eyes glaze (laughs) over. They dig into their olives. But how did it look, brinkmanship in this horrible lack of regular order year after year after year, now generation after generation? How did it look from the poor people inside the CBO who are just the drones of Congress that officially have no political stake in the game? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, CBOs there served the Congress. Um, it, during the shutdown of 1995-96, many CBO employees were declared essential because they were supporting the Congress and helping get through the shutdown period. So, you know, CBO people have to do their jobs and getting the government up and running, getting appropriations passed is something that, you know, they pay play an integral role in in terms of scoring the appropriations and things like that. So it's just another element of the work there. But thanks for the shout out for uh, CBO's work. Um, I mean, I'm not there anymore, but appreciate that kind of shout out. And I guess it must feel good in the old days. They called them essential employees versus non-essential. I think now the word is accepted activity or something. So, uh, Yeah, sorry. Old-fashioned. So using some of the old terminology, um, it is a misnomer. But yeah, people had to come to work. <laughs> but it must be cool to say, hey, well, you stay home if your neighbors are fed. And I'm essential, so I'm heading in. And you can stay home and play pinochle. <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, I think the main thing that most people at CBO want is just, you know, a smooth functioning of the government sure. in some uh, 
good, All right. good, good economic policy. And getting back to your list, number four, I guess, is government shutdowns may harm the federal workforce. And that's a real concern because people generally have a favorable idea of public service, of being a civil servant. The situation can kind of get frustrating for employees. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a human element to this um, in, in terms of people's job security or their ability to make the payments and so on. Um, yeah, the last shutdown, around 800,000 workers were furloughed or went without pay for a period. You know, so it's a lot of people. And, you know, even if you look at the population in general, a survey by the Fed, I think, found that among all U.S. workers, around 40 percent were unable to pay an emergency expense of $400 or more. You know, so, I mean, to the extent that that's affecting some of these 800,000 people, that, you know, that's a real concern. You also wonder if it might harm retention and recruitment in the federal government. Being shut down, being excluded from your job for a while may alter the perception of federal jobs. It might reduce the attractiveness of such jobs for younger workers. And they're already underrepresented in the federal workforce. Right now, just about 7% of permanent full-time employees in the federal government are under the age of 30 even though within the broader labor market, they account for 20%. So you don't want to dissuade your potential workforce from coming to work for you. And increasingly, it must look difficult because the arguments over the budget are, yes, the dollar levels for different programs, but you're only talking about a quarter of the spending anyway, and then it gets down to $10 billion plus or minus out of $1.3 or $4 trillion. So the budgetary matters are there. But more important and more intractable, it seems, are the philosophical and policy types or social issue types of issues that are getting pulled into the budget debate. That must make it look tougher and tougher for you. Well, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of getting to a political resolution, there's it becomes harder when other elements become added to it. I mean, I think the gap in dollars right now seems to be larger, like tens of billions or $100 billion or so. But yeah, when you layer on some other riders and so it can become more difficult. I'm a terrible political prognosticator. Well, you can take the boy out of the CBO, but uh, you can't take the CBO <laughs> out of the boy. And I guess a final question would be, what about the Infrastructure Money, CHIPS Act money, Inflation Reduction Act money? There was a few trillion thrown around there, and a lot of that money is still left over. I wonder to what extent agencies could repurpose some of that money which is not part of these appropriations talks, but it's there for operations. Well, but it's there, but it's designated, right? A lot of that money is mandatory in nature. Again, so the, the law says what you can use it for. Um, yeah, moving money around within the federal government usually involves some sort of legislative action as well. So while lawmakers might be tempted to move it, rescind it, change it in some way, that requires legislation. And that, you know, that we're in that situation now where it, the legislation is, is already difficult to achieve. What, one other issue that we only sort of touched on when we were talking about governance, you know, Fitch ratings recently downgraded the U.S. credit rating. And one of the issues they cited was governance. They, in fact, particularly erosion of governance as a rationale for that downgrade. You know, and I think that the shutdown in some sense might contribute to that sort of perception. And to the extent that it has some sort of long-lasting effect or some sort of future effect on credit ratings, you know, that may make it difficult for us to borrow. It might lead to higher rates on the U.S. debt and so on. Interest is something we have to continue paying also. That will be continued to be paid, you know, during the shutdown. Um, but the higher the interest rates go, the more expensive that is and so on. So anything that affects that, even if it's tangentially, um, it, you know, is also a concern. 
Well, I guess if you can have a hoodie on the Senate floor, then governance can't be far behind. (laughs) Interesting connection, but uh, perhaps. All right. Jeff Holland is vice president of research for the Peter G. Peterson Foundation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader, and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Shane, it's great to talk to you this morning. Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory? And and what was that? I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my trajectory in many ways. And that is at my about 25th year of service, um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed and now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would, you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 25 years, I had compartmentalized a part of me, and I had hidden things, and I had not been my full self at work. And I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders, not having to hide who I was at work, made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously. It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, You already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. How does being first 
How did that influence your leadership style? I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own um, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you, you assume this mantle of being a role model for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself. And in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first. And so you, you just gained extra attention in that. But with that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility. And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization, change your path later in life? Future Farmers of America, well, it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. And I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well. They are skills that I used all the way up through two-star general. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent, but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project. And a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back, those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA. It, it's really great and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence. Because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional, but also into leadership roles. I think so, because if you're, if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust. And so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust. But your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results, is the trust within the team. Excellent, excellent. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would go back and tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career. When I started my career, of course, well, I certainly had some skills. I, w- I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, 
sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration and the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative. That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything, uh, many different formally studied leadership styles, <clears throat> and collaboration, situational. I, I, I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who uh, work for and with you, yeah. you can change to you, meet the needs. You definitely can, and the whole timeline is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want, because it's all, of course, results-driven. And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in, in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in or, you know, something something is timed in, in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you, you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I, I talk often that it's easy to make a decision. It's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point, if you can kind of follow my logic there. I think it's fascinating, and, and maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is, is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this. You just mentioned you're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision. Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you've, you've peeked around the corner a little bit, you've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy for them. You know, They see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces. And in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame. Perfect. What? Is there a figure, either from your personal life or maybe in history, 
that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style? It's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Pullen, who I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life and death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision maker or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Pullen always came up is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it. Meaning, did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And, and just to understand that, especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions. Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and, and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.